Welcome, everyone, to Vipassana Santa Cruz. I'm Carla Brennan, one of the teachers here. And I first met Lama Suryadas, I think, in 1997, when I went to a three-day weekend retreat at the Berry Center of Buddhist Studies on Dzogchen. And at that time, I became smitten with Dzogchen teachings, and also um, I enjoyed... Lama Suridas's unusual style. And for the next number of years, I did maybe two or three um, retreats a year with uh, Lama Suridas. And last few years, I've been so busy with Vipassana Santa Cruz, I, I haven't been doing those retreats. So I'm especially appreciative that um, Surya came tonight at our invitation. I heard he was in the area, so he normally travels around. He lives in Massachusetts. So it's a great treat and a gift to have him here. Have you taught in uh, Santa Cruz before? I have, yeah. but not much. Yeah. Okay. You guys have a very high standard here, so it's hard <laughs> <to remember. laughs> So uh, a little background on, on, on Lama Suryadas, and correct me if I get anything wrong. Um, uh, Surya went to Asia at a young age as a spiritual seeker and traveled around the world as well, but in Asia he studied, began studying with uh, a number of Tibetan Buddhist teachers and other traditions as well, did Vipassana practice and I think met many of the Vipassana teachers-to-be at that time. And um, he focused on Tibetan Buddhist practice and eventually did two, three-year, traditional three-year Retreats in that tradition, and somewhere along the line was, I don't know what the right word is, ordained as a lama in the Nyingma tradition. And he has um, um, been teaching in the U.S. for an, uh, quite a while now. He was instrumental, actually, in bringing a number of the Tibetan Buddhist lamas and teachers to this country who were offering Dzogchen, Dzogchen teachings. And he's one of the first teachers to, to really make Dzogchen teachings widespread and available to, to people. So I've been very appreciative of this myself. And he teaches around the country and also has a retreat center near Austin, Texas, not far from President Bush's place. And I remember Surya says he has a photo of President Bush on his altar to help him with his compassion. (laughs) And he's written many, many books, and um, I would think some of you have read them, are familiar with them. There's the Awakening the Buddha Within, Awakening the Sacred, Awakening the Buddhist Heart, um, and many others more recently. It's what the big questions and Buddha... The Buddha does as Buddha is as Buddha, Buddha does. Yeah. Word, words of wisdom. Yes. So, um, if you're interested in what what Surya says tonight, you can go and um, find some of his books. And maybe of most importantly, or most interest, he was on the Colbert Report. <laughs> Twice. <laughs> the fastest I, five minutes of my life. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, those are probably available online somewhere. Yes, you go to the Colbert report site and you can watch. (laughs) (laughs) 
you can hear about Lama Obama, another important thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was his joke. <laughs> Thank you, Carla. Thank you all. So we've been chanting the six-syllable mantra of Tibet, the Dalai Lama's mantra, the jewel in the lotus, or the Mani mantra, the compassion mantra. And after chanting that and radiating loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, forgiveness, mercy, healing, it really seems redundant to say anything. That meditation, in fact, is called the Compassion Meditation or Chenrezig's Meditation, the Karuna Meditation in Tibetan Buddhism. And the uh, Buddha of love and compassion, or in technical terms, the Mahasattva Bodhisattva, the great uh, spiritual hero, the Bodhisattva of compassion, has four arms representing or uh, symbolizing the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine heartitudes, the four boundless. Metta, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity equal to all. So we cultivate those. We don't pray for those in Buddhism. Of course we may, but Buddhism is really not about asking someone for, uh, to save us. It's about saving ourselves and each other together. Bhavana is the key word in Buddhism, to cultivate. That's why we practice metta bhavana, the cultivation of loving kindness. We don't pray for loving kindness to come to us. We cultivate mindfulness, sati, smriti, sati, mindfulness. We cultivate generosity, selflessness, virtue, self-discipline, effort, concentration, and so forth. All the bodhisattva virtues, or paramis, paramitas, virtues, transcendental virtues. The paramitas of the spiritual hero, the bodhisattva. Bhavana is the word in Buddhism. We cultivate, cultivation, develop, bring into being, bhavana. Buddhism is, after all, a wisdom tradition. It's a mind science. It's a technology for awakening. Buddha gave the radical war cry 2,500 years ago that anybody could become as enlightened, as wise, loving, self, unselfish, and nirvanically peaceful as he did through following such a path, not through following him, but through awakening themselves and each other. That anybody can become as enlightened as Buddha, not only one begotten son, Yes, Buddha's son Rahula also became enlightened, but that's a different story. Millions have become enlightened through following such a path, through cultivating and bringing into being such a path of enlightened living. Bodhi, the root of the word Buddha. Bodhi, Bodhisattva. By being a Bodhisattva, a Buddha-to-be. By being an awakening spiritual warrior, an altruistic edifier, an awakener in the world, a light in the world, a Bodhisattva, an enlightened leader, Bodhisattva. Chogyam Trungpa called it spiritual warrior. One who overcomes one's own defilements, afflictions, and obscurations. Not making war on others. Making war on one's own greed, hatred, and delusion, the three traditional poisons taught by Buddha. Mind poisons. 2,500 years ago, friends, 2,400 years ago before women could vote, before the civil rights era, in a country with a caste system held sway and still does in so many ways. Buddha said anybody can become enlightened, male or female, young or old, smart or dumb. <coughs> Let me go further, Buddhist or otherwise, by pursuing such a path, by awakening. 
through self-realization, through cultivating the wisdom that's within us all, of discernment and self-knowledge, self-realization and inner illumination that comprise enlightenment that's within us all. So tonight I want to talk about, and Carla has um, asked me to talk about the Dzogchen teachings a little bit, and pure presence, and what is meditation really, the joy of meditation and so forth. Because meditation is a joy. Of course, sometimes it seems hard, but meditation is a joy, just like health is a joy, even though it might take some effort to achieve it. But actually, health is the natural state. Disease is the aberration. We don't get health from a doctor. We don't get health later. We come return to the state of health. Disease is the aberration. Similarly, enlightenment, completeness, wholeness, radiance is the natural state. As it says in many scriptures, the inner light that Quaker founder George Fox talked about, the clear light that Tibetans talk about, the unconditioned that Buddha talked about in the Pali Suttas. It's all there. That's why in the Tibetan Dzogchen text, and Dzogchen means the natural great perfection teachings, or the highest teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, the natural great perfection teachings, Dzogchen, the great wholeness, the innate great completeness teachings. It says, we're all Buddhas by nature, not Buddhists, God forbid. (laughs) (laughs) We're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to recognize whom what we are. That's the essence of the path of enlightenment. That's the essence of Buddha, Buddhism. That's the essence of any true transformative spiritual practice. To realize the Godhead, the Godness, the divine within ourselves and each other. We're all Buddhas by nature. We only have to recognize who and what we truly are. That's the meaning of awakening, enlightenment, self-realization, satori, breakthrough. What words can we use by any name? It still is sweet. God-realization. When we find out who we are, we find out who God is, and that's not an ego trip. We find out our true relation to that which is greater than any of us, yet imminent in each of us. The higher power, or any name you put on it. And if you think the Buddhists don't believe it, think again. Especially Western Buddhists. Brought up so theistic. We actually have a very theistic view of Buddha and Buddhism. And seek help outside in many ways. Even from meditation as an activity, that's outside. True meditation is presence. It's authentic wakefulness. It's not crossing our legs, crossing our fingers, crossing our eyes and hoping to get enlightened. Which somehow never comes anyway, have you noticed? Any of your friends get enlightened lately? I'm sure they have, but somehow one overlooks it. A wise guy once said, there are no enlightened beings, only enlightened activity or enlightenedness. I like that. You can think about that. The great perfection teachings, the Dzogchen teachings, introduce us to who and what we truly are. We call the nature of our own heart, mind, our true nature, our Buddha nature, Buddhaness. Even to call it Buddha nature, Tathagata Garbha, Sugata Garbha in Sanskrit, Buddha nature, Buddhaness, is too foreign, too exoteric, too esoteric, too oriental. Yes, teacher Buddha, Sakyamuni Buddha, Siddhartha the Prince, 
from Kapilavastu in southern India was a man, an Indian, who lived 2,500 years ago, a teacher who lived until the age of 80, yes, who got enlightened sitting under a tree in India, the Bodhi tree, the fig tree to you, yes. But Buddha is not a person, has no gender, no age, never died, unborn and undying Dharmakaya or ultimate reality. That's more the inner Buddha. The outer Buddha is the teacher, founder of Buddhism. Actually, he never taught Buddhism, as we all know. He taught the middle way, what he called the middle way. Not too tight, not too loose. A way of the golden mean of harmony and balance and appropriateness. The middle way, which I think is the greatest teaching, and the most useful teaching of Buddhism, actually, to all of us. I hope we remember that, to use the middle way, when we're always trying to decide between yes and no, black and white, right and wrong. Also, there's both and neither. Everything's relative. Everything's subjective. That's the great teaching of Buddhism. Not that nothing matters, that everything is subjective. You can think about that. There's a lot to think about there. That's the meaning of shunyata, or anatta, no self, or shunyata, not what we think it is. That everything is subjective, which frees us from dogmatic opinions. which frees our intense grasping and investment in things that don't bring long-lasting happiness, which cause suffering. So the essence of awakening, friends, is to realize who and what we truly are in the present moment, to practice now in this awareness, and get to know ourselves, befriend ourselves, and see how we're not separate from others. Anatta, no separate self. Shunyata, no separate things. Arhata, arhant, to conquer our delusions and dualistic separations. In the Dzogchen tradition, we say one moment of total awareness is one moment of perfect freedom and enlightenment. Manjusri, the Buddha of Wisdom, says this. This is not something I just made up. It's all about awareness with a capital A, not awareness of breath. We're not breath worshippers. That's just the means to calm and clear, sharpen and hone the concentration. Samadhi, shamatha, shine, concentrative, tranquilly, one-pointed meditation is the means like sharpening a pencil. Don't keep sharpening the pencil till it disappears. Use it to write or whatever, to poke holes, something. <laughs> to chew on, Whatever. The Dharma simile needs to be used and chewed on. And and uh, what's the Tibetan word? Uh, grokked. <laughs> Made part of ourselves. Or we become it. Mingle it with our mind stream, to use the, the technical words. Not study about it, but practice, embody, and become. Like, even the simplest way, mindfulness of breathing. Aware of breathing, watching the breath, observing the breath, becoming the breath, being the breath, just being. Till there's just breathing. There's no you in it. That's the depth of it. Or anything, it doesn't have to be the breath. Here in Santa Cruz we have the waves. Just seeing the waves, watching the waves, becoming the waves, being the waves. Just being. Not you in it. No dualism, no separate you. No afflict, nothing to be afflicted. No one to be afflicted by anything. Just the immediacy, incandescent immediacy of being. 
waves, wind, whatever, any of the elements we can use as support for dissolving, for non-dualism, for, for resolving the conflict between outer and inner, self and other, good and bad. All polarities become complementary, like yin and yang, not contradictory, like black and white, them and us. In the Dzogchen tradition, uh, we talk about the view, the outlook, the meditation, of non-meditation, of uh, uh, pure being or pure awareness, and the activity, the conduct of the bodhisattvas. As general Buddhism is built up from below, and as Vipassana students, we would all be well aware of this, from the basic sutras taught by Buddha, Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna, Shila, ethical self-discipline and morality, virtue, ethical self-discipline, Shila, and upon that, getting straight, then Samadhi, concentration and mindfulness and awareness practice, yes, and from that comes Panya, wisdom, Prajna. From below, the three trainings that comprise the Eightfold Path, taught by Buddha. If you're not familiar, check out, uh, uh, Google it. <laughs> Google and you shall find, as Buddha said. <laughs> or look in my Awakening the Buddha Within, Eight Steps to Enlightenment, all about the Eightfold Path. Eight big chapters, one on each, on the outer, inner, and secret levels of the Eightfold Practice. Including right livelihood, Making a life, not just a living. So, ethics leading to concentration and mindfulness leading to liberating wisdom in the general scheme of Buddhism, climbing up the spiritual path or mountain as if from below. But in the non-dualistic or, or mystical direct access enlightenment now teachings of, the, of Dzogchen, of Tantra, of Mahamudra and Dzogchen, the great perfection teachings, the non-dualistic or mystical teachings of Tibet, swooping down from above, not just schlepping up from below, like mountain climbing, like trench warfare. <laughs> For so many lifetimes. You've heard about this, I'm sure. Lifetimes, schlepping to enlightenment. I and mean, who has time today? We're Americans. <laughs> we want to let our thumbs do the walking anyway. Just text our way to enlightenment. <laughs> Abbreviate everything. B for Buddha. B, BDS, Buddha Dharma Sangha. What else do we need? <laughs> but swooping down from above with the view, with the bigger picture of things as they are, into the meditation of non-meditation, of just being present and aware, of presencing. You know, they say God is a verb. Presencing, not the presence. Where is the presence? I'm in it, I'm out of it. Presencing, sacred art of presencing. However we do that, sitting, walking, standing, lying down, eating, working, however we bring clarity and presence of mind to it. Wakefulness, rather than mindlessly sleepwalking through life, having all kinds of so-called accidents, because we're asleep at the wheel. They're not accidents at all, they're causes. That's why awareness of mindfulness is curative, is the panacea and antidote to all that afflicts and ails us. That's why Buddhism is a wisdom tradition, friends, not a faith. Of course, it's counted as one of the world's great, you know, seven great major religions, but it's not so much a religion, there's no theology or belief in God, 
as much as a wisdom tradition, how we can develop the wisdom ourselves and realize reality, how things are. That's reality or wisdom in Buddhism, to see things as they are, not as they ain't. To see things as they are, not as we are, with our projections and interpretations. First two steps on the Eightfold Path, clear seeing, right vision, clear seeing, and clear intentions, selfless intentions, recognizing interconnectedness and selflessness. Clear seeing, right vision, right, right view is the first step. That's wisdom in Buddhism. Not something very mystical or mysterious about emptiness or not self or other conundrums. So we practice this objective clear seeing right here and now, in every moment. You know, Buddha said there, there were four main positions for meditation. Actually, he never used the word meditation. I mean, poor guy, he didn't even know English. <laughs> he said there were four main positions. I'm sure you all know this, being Vipassana students. There are four main positions for cultivating mindfulness. That was his. That was his emphasis. That was his whole trip, cultivating mindfulness, sati bhavana, cultivating mindfulness in the present moment. What are those four positions? Sitting. Oh, that's easy. Everybody knows. A Buddha's always sitting there under the, the tree or in your backyard in a stone, you know, statue. Mm-hmm. Even churches have a Buddha sitting there. Everybody knows what Buddha does. He's a sadist. <laughs> but that's not that's just a sitting Buddha Buddha said there were four main positions for cultivating mindfulness sitting, standing walking and what's the first one? I can't remember lying, lying down I guess that covers it in other words every position, if he was alive today he'd probably include jogging <laughs> texting, and I don't know what else multitasking <laughs> It takes a lot of awareness to multitask accurately and without an accident. In fact, we're always multitasking. Anybody that says you shouldn't multitask is lying. They don't understand awareness. When you think you're doing one thing, how many things are going on in that one activity anyway? Awareness can accommodate it. We have a big mind. Don't be so square. Oh, I'm just driving. Do you remember when you first started driving, how hard it was to put it all together? You mean I have to steer, use my feet, look in the rearview mirror and out the windshield, and also punch the dial on the radio and shave and drink my latte? And read the map? How's this going to happen all at once? Yeah, we do it. I'm just driving. What are you doing? Driving. Looking at your eyebrows, you know, all the things you see happening. Shouting at the people in the back seat, getting faxes, sending faxes, looking up phone numbers in your many electronic aids. No, but seriously, we have a tremendous resource of awareness. The, the mind is, the, the spirit is mightier than the sword. It's the most powerful thing there is. And that was, in a way, Buddha's point or discovery. Of course, there are many yogis before him. Male and females yogis before him. But Buddha is <coughs> the paragon, excuse me, your archetype of enlightenment. He did it just by meditation. He became fully enlightened. And he passed it on to us how to do that. And that's through presencing, through being incandescently, luminously present in every moment, every, every part of every day. Even while we're sleeping. Through lucid dreaming, being awake in the dream and knowing you're sleeping and dreaming. Being master rather than victim of circumstances and conditions, even in the dream. 
And also after death, the Bardo teachings and all that. So much to go into tonight. But the point is, continuity is a secret of success, as my first Vipassana teacher, Gawankaji, always used to say. And yes, I was there when all those other um, Vipassana teachers-to-be were also learning Vipassana from Gawankaji, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, um, Jack Cornflake, <laughs> Oops. Uh, Dan Goldman and um, I, Christopher Titmus and too many others to mention. All the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> the three Jews and others. It's all about awareness and attention. Meditation is the intentional use of attention in the present moment non-reactive, non-judgmental attention, awareness, present awareness. It's not about samadhi. It's not about bliss. It's not about seeing light. It's not about getting to heaven. It's not about suppressing your thoughts. It's about being aware of your thoughts. Mindfulness of thoughts, not changing your thoughts. Mindfulness of feelings, not changing your feelings and numbing out. Mindfulness of sounds, not having earplugs and hearing nothing. All the senses, mindful of is meditation. Just having them is just sensory activity and perceptions. You with me? Mindfulness of breathing, not just breathing, is meditation. And that's very, very integratable into daily life. That's the secret of bringing Dharma into daily life. You don't have to walk around all the time with your eyes closed or one eye closed. (laughs) How can I meditate while driving? Doofus. <laughs> Bring awareness to everything we do. And a real, a total awareness, a non-judgmental, non-reactive, objective awareness. Not just using it as a rationalization to never practice and never meditate. If it's all equal to you, then you wouldn't have to say it. When somebody says that, or I'm beyond practice, it's usually a rationalization. It's like a red flag. Today, um, in this country and elsewhere, you know, we have like the Vedanta school. The Vedanta is a great ancient school. Of course, Ramana Maharshi and many others, Punjajinos, got enlightened that way. It's a great tradition. But today in America, we have many people, too many people, who say, you know, no practice and no meditation needed. I mean, that's fine if that's true for you. But for most of us, it is needed. They're saying, we're already enlightened. I I call this the premature immaculation school. (laughs) You wouldn't be hanging, you wouldn't be a seeker hanging around in these, in this ghetto if you're already enlightened. You'd be enlightening the world, having a good time at least. You wouldn't be here. You know, seekers, why'd you come here? You lo- you lo- did you lose something here in this room? <laughs> we need practice. Practice is perfect. We don't, it's not practice makes perfect later. Practice is perfect. We just do it. That's the meaning of bhavana, of Buddhist practice. Embodying it, living the enlightened life, cultivating the virtues, being a Buddha-to-be, a bodhisattva, an exemplary individual edifying and awakening the world. Recognizing our inseparability, that we're all in the same boat, we rise or fall, sink or swim together. That's the meaning of Mahayana, the big boat, universal vehicle. Not just thinking of our own happiness, our own bliss, our own satisfaction. Oh, 
I'm going to get in my comfort zone for half an hour and then just forget about everything. I mean, how, how long does that last? Then after you, you come out and you know the kid asks you something and you go, <laughs> don't bother me, or whatever. If our practice isn't making us better people, more genuine, softening up our hard shell of egotism and defense mechanisms, opening up the drawbridge and moat that separates us from self and others, what good is it? We should be very honest with ourselves, not waste time. Time is life, friends. And we have all the time in the world. There's no shortage of time. It's just how we use it. Awareness makes the time slow down. We have so many more mind moments and choice points every moment. Like in mindful anger management, we could choose how we respond. We don't just have knee-jerk responses. Awareness creates some space between stimulus and response. It's very practical for liberating us from knee-jerk responses of retaliating in kind when somebody shouts at us or harms us, for example, road rage or, or office problems or whatever, mm-hmm. mate troubles. Mindful anger management is one of the great practices for peacemaking today. Think about it. Awareness gives more, us more space between the stimulus and the response to choose how and if to respond. We should be teaching this to all our children in school or in some way, without the isms of Buddhism even. And attention issues can be handled with awareness too. Maybe we can prescribe less Ritalin and have more concentration and awareness practice and meditation games for the children. Like walking one foot after another on a line on a tennis court and then backwards. Chanting. Non-competitive sports like karate and qigong and so on. Attention training. It's all about attention. So in Dzogchen, the teaching is according to the view of the bigger picture of things left just as they are, comes the meditation of leaving it as it is, and then the natural, spontaneous Buddha activity, selfless Buddha activity. This is how it's always been explained. If you read my books and other teachers' books on Dzogchen, where you get direct introduction by teachers, you'll understand that, I mean, you get to utilize this way of looking at things, along with the general ethics meditation and wisdom trainings of the general Buddhist traditions. Theravada and Zen, Mahayana, and so forth. So I can talk all night, but I do want to open the floor to questions. This is a very important year for, you know, we have the local elections here in this country. It's a very important year, but actually every year is an important year. Every day is important. Every moment is important. We're voting every moment for how this world's going to be. Let's not overlook it. We're voting every moment with our words, our actions, our thoughts, and our intentions, every moment. Let's take responsibility for that and not abstain from voting every moment for how this world's going to be. And think seriously about that and apply ourselves to a better world for our children and for all. And be bodhisattvas, lights in this world, servant leaders and so forth, bodhisattva. With or without the isms. Any questions, please? Also, I I'm wondering if we could open a couple more windows. It's getting a little stuffy. The windows over there are open. You have to sort of swing them and yeah, all the way around, kind of. Turn them all the way around. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God.
Yes, sir. Yes, essentially when we were doing the chanting yes. earlier, um, I could feel like I was part of the whole universe. It's like, like mm-hmm. you're saying, it's all being part of the whole. And I just want to say when we were chanting, I felt that my voice was just part of everything. It was just a tremendous feeling for it. Good. That's part of what it does. But I really just felt connected to everyone doing that. Are you used to chanting? Is that part of your practice? No, not usually. Maybe something you could take on that's, you know, good, like fun, deep fun. You don't have to be self-conscious when you're chanting. You remember these Buddhist prayers and no one's listening. Questions? Yes, ma'am. When you talk about enlightenment, what do you mean? Oh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) I think I mentioned, you know, just briefly in passing, wisdom, selflessness, nirvanic peace. Those are the traditional definitions of enlightenment. The fullest flowering of being. Buddhist enlightenment means nirvanic peace, fulfillment, and bliss. Deathless enlightenment. Awakening from our delusion and experiencing things as they are and as they're meant to be, a whole new life, which is not necessarily after death. Enlightenment is the sole goal of Buddhism, of all the different schools and countries, lineages, uh, languages of the chants, and colors of the robes. Enlightenment is the sole goal of Buddhism. Awakening, enlightenment. That's what Buddha means, to the awakened one. That was not his name. That was what he became. He was seen as that way awake or enlightened. Bodhi actually is the root of the word bud. Sanskrit is the root of many of the uh, Indo-language, Indo-European language trees. And the word bud, or to blossom, to, you know, in others, what is within us, all that is within us, you know, the ultimate blossoming or unfolding of who and what we are and can be. That's Bodhi, Buddha, to blossom. So in Tibetan, the word is sanjay, which means purified and fully unfolded. Sanj, purified. Purified all the defilements or obscurations or negativities and fully unfolded all the positive potential. That's the Tibetan definition of Buddha or enlightenment. But in general, nirvanic peace, bliss, and deathless ease. But enlightenment is not what we think it is. We don't need to focus too much on that. It kind of becomes like a pie in the sky. Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned lucid dreaming. Lucid dreaming. Uh, mindfulness while dreaming. Mm-hmm. Any, uh, any tips or clue how to get there? <laughs> yeah, sure. It's a whole teaching on it you can learn about. Tibetan dream yoga, lucid dreaming. There are books on it, tapes on it. Like You can train yourself when you're going to sleep to make an attention to awaken within the... To go to sleep consciously, observe what's happening with the senses and the mind, and you know, go to sleep consciously and awake in the dream and know you're dreaming. You can do it with chanting. You can do it with a dream friend, uh, a dream attendant who helps you remind you while you're asleep. Or Stephen LeBurge, the author of the book on lucid dreaming, he has some kind of product that's like a dream light that flashes a little on you, so. It, stimulates you to remember in the dream. I mean, in the old days, we used to have a dream attendant. 
I mean, you know, in the old days, we lamas, we would have servants, so it was much easier to get enlightened. <laughs> these, these days, you can't get your wife to do that because she's, you know, got the, the mask and the hair and the whole, everything. And it's, it's a whole other problem today we have. <laughs> I have uh, audio tapes out from Sounds True on this, Tibetan Dream Yoga. You can learn. It's very easy. There's a book or two by Namke Norbu Rinpoche, by um, Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche. You can find these things on the Buddhist bookshelves that are just falling off in every bookstore today. <laughs> what I like to do is I kind of make the intention to, you know, I'm going to learn what I need to learn. I go down the Buddhist bookshelf uh, store and I see what falls and hits me on the head. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, I look for the smallest one with the biggest print <laughs> and most pictures. <laughs> Yes. So is capitalism doomed? <laughs> <laughs> capitalism is doomed. I don't know. Why are you asking me? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not a bad system compared to some of the others that we have going, but it is a bit problematic, especially the great iniquity and inequality between the rich and the poor in our country and the rich and the poor countries in the world. This is going to be a big problem, and it is already. But what's a better answer? I'm not sure. That's the problem. Mahatma Gandhi said, um, there's enough resources in this world for everybody's need, but not for their greed. <laughs> so I think it's up to each of us to try to balance our need and greed. Everybody has needs. Everybody has greed. How much do we give in? And how much do we share? And what's the cost of like you know not sharing? Collect all the marbles, and then what? Get overrun by you know all the poor people who revolt. This great inequality between rich and poor has always been the cause for violent revolution in this world. Yes, in the back there. Um, when you were young, what led you onto a spiritual path? Um, I don't know, karma? <laughs> I encountered these things in, in college. And, um, you know, it was the 60s. And um, when I graduated, I went to India to, I wanted to pursue the source rather than to study about it in graduate school. So I thought I'd go over there for three months and check it out. But I sort of never came back. <laughs> I'm not even here now, are you? <laughs> but now you don't have to go that far and learn foreign languages and, and you know, have dysentery and <laughs> hepatitis and dengue fever and smallpox and all the things we used to have. Scurvy. Uh, 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 what's, what did I have? Scabies. Anybody have scabies around here? Scabies. You know, when you're in India, you get scabies, you have to burn all of your possessions. You know, your sleeping bag and your pack and all of your clothes. It's hard to replace over there, size 12 shoes. (laughs) (laughs) And blue jeans. I mean, now you can. Not 1971. So that was the beginning of my naked phase. (laughs) (laughs) Questions? Yes, in the back there. Uh... The topic you came up with today was uh, death. Death? 
I don't want to hear about that. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, neither did I. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, don't worry about it. Yeah, I beat cancer this year, and that was, that oh. was kind of interesting because well I was done. struggling against it, you know. Got it. Yeah. Go against it. But today I was working on a legal document called a living will, and there was all this language in there about, you know, what do you want done after your death? And yes. For the first time, maybe, seeing the words in black and white, it was really kind of shocking to consider, like, not being <laughs> for a moment. Because especially after the struggle to be the thought of not being well it was, it was just jarring and I, I don't there's no specific question I just wonder give us a soundbite <laughs> yeah. well after what you said I'm not going to be too frivolous anymore but uh, Buddha said that death was his guru that it's the, the, the sight of death, when he went outside his palace the first time, he saw a sick, the four visions, a sick person and an old person and a cremation, a dead person and a holy man. Those four sights set him on his path. And that death, Yamaraja, Lord of Death, was his guru. That it was death that drove him to seek something beyond life and death, beyond change, to seek the mountain from which the waters of life and death had receded. That's not about not being. That's about deathless being. Remember, deathless nirvana. Not oblivion. Deathless nirvana is Buddha's definition. Deathless nirvana is Buddha's definition. Not eradication. Deathless. So he said that death or the Lord of Death, the remembrance of mortality was his guru. It drove him to seek something beyond all of this this roller coaster, this spectacle, this rebirth, life and death, ups and downs, cycles, whatever, however you want to call it. And I think that's a very telling comment from one of the great people in history. All that flowed from that. Keeping that in the forefront of consciousness. So we could learn from that, that if we thought about our mortality and kept it in the forefront of our consciousness, how that would make us, help us savor every moment, be grateful every day when we wake up, make sure we hug and kiss the kids before we send them to school, what if we never see them again, and so forth, smell the roses, etc. So you said you beat cancer, and you know, maybe you're starting to understand these things at your age, that you could not be here to see whoever your loved ones are grow up, or this world, etc., yeah? So that's a very important. So the meditation on, immort- on mortality and death is one of the biggest important meditations according to Buddhist tradition. Not to be morbid, but to recognize everyone dies. All that's born dies. We're not going to be here forever. So what are we going to do now? We are here. And the miracle to cherish life in all its forms. And not just not to kill. Yes, that's one part of cherishing life. But also not to kill time and deaden ourselves and waste time and squander our life. We kill so much time. Don't Americans on the average watch six hours of TV a day? I mean, TV is just like anything else. So, you know, okay. But, you know, what that signifies, there's a lot of killing time in there. Even while we're standing on the grocery line, okay, not you, you probably don't go to the, the ordinary shopping market. You go to Trader Joe's or Whole Foods. But still, when you're lined up there, 
you know, you're waiting on the express line trying to squeeze your 28 things into the 15 <laughs> hole. And there's a lot of other people doing the same, so it's slow on the express line. And so you're looking at, you know, there's the magazines, and instead of breathing in and breathing out and using your time you know, to get enlightened, you're like, you have, you have to check out the National Enquirer and see if Jackie Kennedy gave birth to a, a monster today or not. <laughs> And if not, there's Oprah's magazine, and next to that is, I don't know what, Self magazine, Spirituality and Healing, you know. I mean, all the rags, Yoga Journal, you know, my books, probably, all that crap. <laughs> you know, and we're just killing time. Or in the waiting room at the airport, or while commuting, killing time, deadening ourselves. We could use that time. We could use that time better, perhaps. I mean, think about it, that's all. So death and the contemplation mortality helps us cherish life and time and values, not just things, because all things pass. All those who gather separate. All those who are born die, and so forth. Just observe nature, the seasons, and so on. And these truths are self-evident. It's not Buddhism. They're universal truths that help us be more authentic, present, and live and real. Show up every day, every moment. That's very important. And then crisis and tragedy is the broom that sweeps away negative obscurations. That's what they say, negative karma. Sometimes the crisis or tragedy is the thing that precipitates us getting out of our rut. It's the most transformative precipitant of change. Not that we wish crisis, loss, or tragedy on anyone, but sometimes the most... Transformative agent of change or precipitating event. Maybe like an illness or a house fire or something can be, or losing a relationship or job. Because life doesn't end, life goes on, and, and we start to learn, take the bigger picture. Whatever, whatever we really care about right now is probably not as important as we think it is. You know, think about how important it will be in five or ten years. I'm not talking about your, your baby. But, you know, the election or the bad haircut you got on the way here or whatever. <laughs> who said what to who at the office? It's probably not that important in the light of five or ten or thirty years. Or if you had a bad meditation, you know, where you go to a, a Vipassana retreat for ten days and you have a bad air day, you can't find your breath. <laughs> <laughs> so what? The next day you have a good day, and you get all excited. So what? <laughs> That's life. We shouldn't give in to elation and despair, um, elation and depression. That's where equanimity, a little detachment, and taking a long-term view comes in. We can cultivate the, the bigger perspective. It can be very freeing and centering. Yes, questions, yes. Use the term uh, deathless nirvana. Yes, and, uh, deathless ease, that's a, a definition of nirvana. Uh, it strikes me, the first thing I, I, I think, the Tibetan look at the dead, and the uh, recovery of memory of past lives and that kind of thing, can, you, can one meditate and uh, actually experience the bardos? So they say. So they say, I don't know. Um, and, and can one meditate and actually experience uh, now? <laughs> 
So they say. <laughs> I wouldn't know, but you know, approximately, I think so. You've done two, three. Well, done. Ch- who cares what I did? Are you listening to what I'm saying? I know you're curious. Me too. Are we experiencing it now? Are we experiencing it now? Do we ever experience anything? Or we just keep moving on like a shark? (laughs) Okay, your next question about my biography. Fascinating as it is. A two, three year plus. Yeah, I'm a slow learner. We didn't have the internet in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do those three years? Meditating. It's a typical uh, three-year program. Meditating. And all those things that you read about in those Tibetan books. <laughs> Every one. It's a complete Lama training, so you do all different practices. But it's like, what do you do? I don't know if you've ever been to an inside meditation retreat or a Zen session. What do you do all day? I'm asking you. Do you know? Oh, um, what do you do I'm all day? Few, like Just tell me one. What do you do all day in like short? Um, I don't need the whole schedule. I've been there. Pay attention to one's breath. Okay. Be mindful of what one is doing. Yeah. So that's what you do. I mean, Tibetan Buddhism is a little more complex than that, but so is Zen or Vipassana. But that's what you do. You have a schedule, and every day is the same, and it's you know intensive, silent practice training. Of course we do chanting and praying and Tibetan yoga and prostrations and mantra practice, but a lot of, you know, mostly meditation. Is it a solo practice or is there a community that is It's a group practice unless you're experienced and you've had the teachings and you know how to practice by yourself. <coughs> it's a group cloister with a teacher or teachers. Any other questions before we end? Yes, young lady, hi. I don't know. You only you have to tell me. I don't know. If you genuinely enjoy anything, I don't know. I mean, I didn't call TV a trivial activity, but I mean, what what is not a trivial activity? How about that? No. <laughs> I'm asking me. I'm thinking. What is not a trivial activity? Um, playing with my dog, that's not trivial. Rooting for the Red Sox, that's not trivial. <laughs> what is not a trivial activity? I'm, yeah, I'm asking you to think about it. You're a young person. It's a big question in life. What is meaningful and what is trivial? What is authentic and what is not? Isn't that a big question? I mean, not everybody's that intellectual. They want to think about that all the time. But since we're talking, watching TV could be very... Um, Meaningful, or you know, on many scores, learningful or fun, or you could you know have your best naps in front of the TV, and that counts, especially if you have insomnia. I have some of my best naps in front of the TV. But you asked about if you really enjoy it, so you're you're valuing the enjoyment part. Um, joy is an important part of life. So since you're a young person, I don't like to quote, 
called Buddha every time I open my mouth and sound like Billy Graham or somebody with Jason's <laughs> A little Buddhism isn't a bad thing these days. It's rare enough. Buddha said, the world is full of suffering, but we have to embrace the suffering joyously. That doesn't mean we enjoy the people of suffering. It means we, in, we, we, we appreciate reality as it is. And of course we try to alleviate suffering, but we, we embrace life joyously, openly. That's like an attitude that we could to consider adopting. So joy is important. So if you genuinely enjoy watching, I don't know, Dancing with the Stars, I mean, I like it too. <laughs> I mean, of course, in, in, you know, me, I don't like that. I put it down. I think it's trivial. And reality shows. But my wife introduced me to the nature of reality shows. <laughs> Surya, Jerry Rice is dancing on Dancing with the Stars. Jerry Rice! <laughs> and he's competing against um, Emmett Smith and Ed, Evander Holyfield. I was so there. <laughs> and Emma Smith won. <laughs> she introduced me to nature reality shows. It was cool. So there's something in everything. And nothing is really it. Now, reading a book isn't necessarily any better. Or some highfalutin activity. But um, you're a young person. It's good to think about these things and come to some conclusions for yourself, or like discuss it with some others, and you know, collectively figure out how to live and what's important. I hope that's helpful. Are we communicating? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was thinking, wouldn't you say that people that, that tend to be more greedy, more physically ambitious? tend to alter the world more than those who are kind of concerned with, uh, you know, uh, realizing themselves and, uh, you know, finding their, their own... No. I wouldn't, I wouldn't jump to that conclusion too fast. Do you think that people who are greedy and ambitious um, change, you know, of course they may achieve more of certain things, but... Uh, do you think they achieved more than, and changed the world more than the Buddha or Jesus or, I don't know, Gandhi or um, Sojourner Truth or Albert Schweitzer? Or, um, what do you think? I guess like, or Lao Tzu? One of the main examples I'm sort of drawing from is uh, what's going on Tibet. Well, now you're getting very specific. And so what are you thinking? Uh, well, well, it's pretty much that uh, the, the people with... Uh, not necessarily the people that are that are, uh, that, are that are considerate, but the people with power are the ones that tend to uh, change the course of, of things. Uh, I guess what, well, what I meant regarding that was that. Uh, you know, I think it's good to think about the things that you're assuming. People with power change the course of things. That's what you said. I'm not, I'm not saying. And I already said. I already said. But this is definitely open for question. That I believe that the mind or the spirit is mo the most powerful thing in the world. Mm -hmm. So, um, who changed the course of things? Um, Jesus, he didn't have any power till he changed the course of things, and he had power. Mahatma Gandhi, he didn't have any power to break the back of the British Empire, the most powerful empire in the world. You're familiar with the story? But he marched to the sea. He had moral and spiritual power. 
And a million Indians marched too. And what did they do? They picked up salt. And that broke the back of the British salt tax. And there was a nonviolent resistance. And that's sort of a whole wave. You know, when there's 500 million Indians and a few tens of thousands of British soldiers with muskets, the balance of power shifted. Gandhi didn't have any power. Did you ever see the Gandhi movie? Yeah. His spindly legs and his little diaper. <laughs> let's go! Hey, let's go! Hurry up! When he died, do you remember what's in his room in Delhi? There's a famous picture of his possessions, of his powerful men. His spectacles, his walking stick, his sandals, and a, a one book, the Bhagavad Gita or something. Also some monkeys. Well, and, no, okay. <laughs> and some monkeys. I guess I can only really speak from my reference of what I've seen in my lifetime. Okay. I can say what I can draw from Jesus 2000. Okay, go on. I can't say that, you know, I, you know, cause I, I haven't seen anything like that in my lifetime, mm. but I can see that, you know, an oppressive government um, can easily overpower a peaceful nation. So you're talking about the Chinese communist government and Tibet? Right. Right. Okay. That's, I, that's good. Yeah. Also, corrupt. There are many things one could say about this. Like, um, you know, the peaceful government, the Chinese communists have only been around 50 or 80 years. You're familiar with the history. Mm -hmm. So Mao Zedong was living in a cave when he started his long march. He didn't have any power. How could he break the back of the Chinese warlords that ruled China? Just with his little red book and his communist theories and his chopsticks. But he did. So one time he had no power, but he, he and the people of that time gained power. So, you know, power goes around. There's no such thing as power uh, per se. It's like energy, you know. You can gather it. You can focus it with a, uh, a magnifying glass and make a fire. You know, it's not just like there. I mean, it's there, but you have to focus it. You have to steal fire from the gods. So the power is really within it. But I think what you're really asking is, isn't it better to be activist than contemplative? I'm not, no, to I'm make not a better that, world? I'm not, no, I'm not saying that that's, that's, that's necessarily better. Um, that sounded like where you were coming from. But yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I, I don't know. I mean, in the long run... Because that's a good question, it's actually. To, you know, it's hard to project, project those type of things. Yeah. I, mean, I, can only, I can only see right now in the short run. So that's, 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 yeah, that's, that's, right. That's it, it's hard for us to see the back and the causation and forward and the implications, but I think... We have to learn how to try to extend that a little causation and see, you know, what goes around comes around and, and not just, you know, be so. Yeah. It's like a lot of people are just seeing sort of that, you know, like here it's, uh, you know, in this, in this class it's very concentrated, especially in Santa Cruz, California. But I mean, it's like we, uh, you mentioned earlier, you need something, you need um, some type of catalyst for change, you know, like it, uh, right. times it is a, something has to happen. A, yeah. Well, let me just make a little comment about that. Everybody talks about, I mean, yeah, more or less people, I'm not just talking about the election. Everybody says, especially in concepts like this, we want to change, we want to change, right? Transformation, change, growth, you know, human potential movement, growth, spiritual evolution, growth, change. But who's ready to change and give up the cozy, nest, familiar nest at the bottom of your rut? We want to pour a little icing on top. So who's ready to change and sacrifice that nest and, and get out of the rut? Who's ready and willing 
and able, who's willing to go face the unknown and the fear and insecurity of getting out of the rut in the unknown new territory? And who's able to persevere and to have the know-how and stick-to-itiveness to keep going? The ready, willing, and able, not just I want to change, I want to change. Who's ready, willing, and able to do it? Again, that's where the power comes from within, from steadfastness and resolve and determination and putting our attention and, and, and maybe together, you know, asking for help and helping each other. It's a process. It's a project. It doesn't just happen because we say it. Questions? We're almost done. Yes? I was glad that you um, chose to do the meditation you did tonight with the Dalai Lama's chant. I wonder if you know how he's doing. Um, he's having some uh, medical checkups for his stomach again and in India. Um, I think he's he's getting older, he's slowing down, he keeps having these recovered stomach problems, so I don't have any inside information, but I would guess that um, there's something wrong, you know, maybe stomach cancer, there's something wrong, he's had this before. But then he said he's going to be around for another 10 years at least, so I don't know, I hope so. But he does get excruciating pains and things like that in his stomach now and then. But they determined a few years ago it wasn't cancer, so I don't know. I don't know. Who has a burning question? Because we're going to have to wrap up soon. Bur- any burners? No, we're so we have burning. a burner? Yes? When delusion comes, how do you deal with it? When delusion comes, how do you deal with it? Well, it, sometimes it's hard because, you know, when you're deluded, it's hard to have, have the clarity to even know you're deluded, but that's one thing. Is it When any... Um, obscuration or defilement, to use Buddhist terms, comes. It could be delusion, but it could be like desire and lust, or it could be anger. When it comes to bring awareness to it, already gives you some chances, as I was talking about before, to choose how to respond, like mindful anger management, to be aware your button's being pushed in a familiar way, is a fork in the road, gives you some space to choose rather than just blindly respond in the usual way. So the delusion is in a way the toughest one, but not impossible. Just like you can be aware while you're falling asleep and aware while you're asleep and dreaming. You can get some perspective. We have different parts of ourselves. You can have perspective on yourself, right? Like you can look at your body. You can look at your eyes with a mirror or something. So not to be delu- confused about delusion. Like, to know you're confused is wisdom. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you know you're hallucinating, that's clarity. Hallucinating might be a chemical or a visual, an optic response. That's, I'm just talking about like a gross outer delusion. If you know you're hallucinating, that's clarity. So, not to be confused about confusion. You don't have to sort it out. This too will pass. You know, the famous, the old Buddhist mantra, it's a good one to remember, this too shall pass. Whatever it is, temporary weather states, emotional states, will pass. So some delusions are harder than others to deal with. Like delusions about our identity and ourself are so deeply ingrained, it's very difficult to get a grip on them or perspective on them. Others, like I said, about a hallucination or, you know, some mistaken prejudice. Maybe you have the same prejudice your parents did. Maybe they didn't know it was a prejudice. Maybe you do. 
then you have a perspective on your prejudice, even though you still feel it. So you're not confused about that particular delusion. You're not deluded by the delusion. This is not Buddhist double talk. <laughs> okay? So sometimes, if I don't know what to do, I just put my head down and like pray and like don't know what to do. And the answer usually comes, if you don't know what to do, do nothing. That doesn't mean do nothing forever. It means like, you don't know what to do, dummy. Then why do anything? And then there's some peace in that. And then the next thing comes, and maybe you do know what to do. And some other... You know, so you don't always want to be fighting with the shoelace that you can't untie. Sometimes you just have to stop fighting with it and start again. Or you know, fighting with trying to remember something that's on the tip of your tongue. Sometimes you have to stop thinking about it for it to pop up a minute later. So I hope that's helpful. And there are definitely different levels of delusion also. So you know, some are more insidious and deep. Some are just more obvious and habitual. You know, just like there's different levels of desire from intense addiction to just ordinary like um, wishes or like I'm thirsty, which is so easy to recognize or deal with. It's a spectrum. Last question. Yes, ma'am. We're, we, we pray for the enlightenment of all beings, the awakening of all beings. So, what if it happens? <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> then we have a big party. <laughs> party? I just, it's, just a, it's an interesting conundrum in some way. In what way? You mean like then, what would happen to all the, the Buddhist preachers? We'd all be out of work. <laughs> but it would be a big party. <laughs> With a lot of free, you know, food and drink, so we wouldn't need to work. Deathless ease, you see, party. Anyway, it's kind of theoretical. Because enlightened is not what we think it is. You're thinking, if everybody's enlightened, would it be just like the bubbles popped and everybody's gone, or what? Right. Well, maybe it would it'd be life as it really meant to be. Um, let's make it more practical. I don't know. I don't know you. I'm just looking at you, reading your aura, not <laughs> reading your aura, not, and seeing that you know you're really striving to be happy. What if you were happy? What would happen to all of your efforts? Like you wouldn't get out of bed anymore. What would happen? <laughs> what if you strive for, and you got such happiness that it included contentment, fulfillment, and nirvanic ease? Then what else would be there to strive for? It feels like it would be like the well, this is all the, you know, <laughs> this is how the tree grows out of, you know, I call it the popcorn machine. <laughs> and we keep buttering it up. <laughs> is there a self? What self? Which, you know, the, the unhappy self? The true little Buddha? Now think about it. You're having this conversation with yourself, so take it further. <laughs> Well, it doesn't matter. How, you know, some teachers say that Buddha taught one thing. Mahagosananda, the great master of Cambodia, always used to say Buddha taught one thing and one thing only about suffering and the end of suffering, you know, true happiness. 
So we work for a goal of less suffering. We don't worry about if there's no suffering, wouldn't it be kind of depressing and boring? <laughs> Let's try that problem. That would be a good problem to have. All the drug companies would go out of business, all the Prozac makers, all the psychiatrists. Let's try that problem. That would be a good problem. There are many Buddhist virtues, you know, the ten paramis, the six paramis, but wisdom is the panacea and virtue. And then there's no question about self or existence or non-existence because it's all clear. Everything's clear. Like, when I become clear, everything becomes clearer. That's how you change, transform the world. So one person at a time. It says in the Jewish wisdom scripture, the Talmud, that to save one's soul is to save the whole world. I like that. That's a very Buddhist thought. You think about it. Think about your child. To lose your child is to lose the whole world, right? To save your child is to save the whole world. I mean, get real. Who cares about all beings? That's a big abstraction. And even when we say that, you only think about the six billion human beings at best. What about the grillions of, I don't know, wasps and insects? <laughs> we have to save them too. I mean, according to this way of thinking. And how long is that going to take? <laughs> so the Bodhisattva understands the magic or the unreality of time and space and numbers. and It's much deeper and authentic. Like when your child comes home safe at night, you can go to bed and rest and turn out the lights too and you're safe and that's enough for now. That's important. So do, you know, virtue is its own reward. One good deed is enough for now. For now. Thank you all and good night. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, yes, thanks everyone. And, and we want... Um, I want to... Thank for Vipassana Santa Cruz and myself. Thank you, Rob. That you came. And I have a brief, Carla. just brief announcement. Is um, uh, normally we go through a long list of what's coming up with Vipassana Santa Cruz. I'm not going to do that, but I do want to say that we have flyers over there on the table of different programs and retreats and so forth that are coming up, and we have mm. sittings every week, scheduled every week. You can look at the website vipassanasc.org. And I also want to say that we sustain ourselves on the premise, on the philosophy of generosity, which means we don't charge for anything, as you noticed tonight, but we invite people to express their appreciation and their generosity through donations. And on the table in the foyer there are two baskets. One basket is to contribute to sustaining the center here and and um, creating a a firm foundation for this the, the uh, teachings in the center here, and the other goes to the teachings and the teachers, and they're labeled there. And so, all the donations for the teaching tonight will will express our great appreciation for Ram Sridhar's coming and teaching us tonight. So, I don't know when or if he'll be back, but I, I hope he is. But this is a rare opportunity to to have him teach us. So. Thank you. If anybody's interested, I'm giving a weekend in Tustin, which is near Irvine, California. And if you look at my website, also you'll see my general schedule. We have a retreat in Joshua Tree at the end of March for eight days every year 
near Palm Springs, and I often teach in Southern California, so I come around. Yeah. Are you still teaching in Santa Rosa? No. no. Just Joshua Tree and Laguna Beach and Orange County these days at Marin. Okay. Do you want to do a little dedication so let's um, dedicate the merits or share the positivity from our good-hearted practices and intentions and practices, thoughts here, and dedicate it towards universal enlightenment and the betterment of all, a better world, a safe and sane world, an end to war and poverty and justice and oppression. And that the seed of enlightenment will be planted and flourished where it has not yet been planted. And where it has been growing, such as in all of us, it will be this, this, this seed or this, this little um, ember or flame will be fanned and, and blaze up and illumine the whole universe. So, it's very important, I think, not to hoard our merits or not to just think about ourselves and what we get out of these virtuous practices, but to include all in our prayers and practices and undermine and erode our selfishness. So we dedicate these merits in the traditional Buddhist way. And I'm going to chant this in Tibetan now, the Dalai Lama's favorite prayer <clears throat> about planting the seed of enlightenment and flourishing it, as I said in English. Jancho Semcho Krimpoche Makie Panankie Gyoche Kie Panyampa Mepaya Gane Kandu Pelwasho Gewa Diyin Yodurda Chenrezi Wadrabjune be kind to one another. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.